from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. Now the Russians are doing everything that they can to try to try to get me, to try to kill me, to try to stop me, to try to intimidate me. That's Bill Browder, CEO of Hermitage Capital Management, American and a sworn enemy of Vladimir Putin. There are probably 250 people working full-time inside the Russian government at any given moment trying to destroy my life. You have clearly proven yourself to be an enemy of Vladimir Putin. Has he tried to retaliate against you? In every possible way. I've been threatened with death, with kidnapping, with arrest. They've, the Russian government has, has sent out six Interpol red notice arrest warrants for me over the last five years. Why does Vladimir Putin hate this American so much? That story coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. On Monday, March 26th, the U.S. government announced that 60 Russian diplomats are being expelled, in large part because of the poisoning of former Russian double agent Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia in Salisbury, England, on March 4th. Almost two dozen other countries joined the effort, which was started by the British government on March 14th, when it kicked out 123 Russian diplomats to send the message that it's not okay to assassinate people in the UK. There are suspicions that Russian agents may have killed many more people in the UK, and the Russian government has a hit list. One of the people who believes he's on that list is American Bill Browder, CEO of Hermitage Capital. He joined us on Target USA to explain why he believes that and how it came to be. Mr. Browder, thank you for agreeing to join us. You have a very fascinating story to tell. You've told it a number of times, but I believe just in view of some of the things that have happened here in the U.S. and around the world for the last few years, your story is even more important. Something very interesting happened to you on November 13, 2005. Would you explain to us what that was? Sure. So I was um, living in Russia, in Moscow. Um, I had been living there for 10 years, and I was running the largest um, investment fund in the country called the Hermitage Fund with $4.5 billion. I had become a shareholder activist in Russia, which meant that I was um, exposing corruption in Russian companies that I was investing in as a um, as an investment strategy, uh, which had worked out very well, um, both from a financial standpoint and from a societal standpoint for a number of years, because I, every time I would expose corruption, the corruption would stop and the share prices would go up. But um, uh, eventually the corruption that I was exposing um, ended up in, the, or I should say, it, it was going into the hands of people who were very politically highly connected in the Putin regime. And eventually those people um, uh, went to Putin and said, we need to stop this guy. And on November uh, 13, 2005, as I was flying back into Russia after having um, 
gone away for the weekend to London, I was stopped at the uh, airport, the Russian Moscow airport. Um, I was detained in um, in the airport's detention center, and then I was uh, deported the next day, and subsequently declared a threat to national security of Russia. So, eighteen months after your expulsion, a couple of very interesting raids took place in Moscow. Tell us about them. Well, so um, well, first thing I did after being deported was I I evacuated my staff. And then the second thing after that was to liquidate all of my holdings in, in Russia. And I thought that I was pretty much safe at that point. There was no people to arrest or assets to freeze. But 18 months after I was expelled on June 4th, 2007, um, I got a call from a secretary in my Moscow office, uh, who was the only employee left in the office, who called me up and said, uh, there's 25 police officers raiding the office. I then called up my American lawyer in Moscow and I asked him, what should I do? And he said, I don't know. There's 25 more officers raiding the office, raiding my office looking for your documents. And in that uh, June 4th raid, <clears throat> the, the um, uh, policemen were looking for the stamps and seals and certificates for our investment holding companies through which we had invested all of our money in Russia. They found those documents at the law firm. They seized those documents. And then the next thing we knew, we no longer owned our investment holding companies, our empty investment holding companies, I should point out, because we had already sold everything in those companies. But um, the, we no longer owned these investment holding companies um, because they've been fraudulently re-registered out of our name into the name of a man who had been convicted of murder and let out of jail early by the police uh, in order to put his name on these documents. Victor so, Markolov. Victor Markalov. <clears throat> and so I was terrified. So here, here you've got this um, murderer working with the police to, to do identity theft of our companies. And um, I thought to myself, my God, if, if this is what's going on out there, over there, even though we have no economic risk at this point because our money is safe, God knows what other type of legal risks we have. And I, I wanted to stop this process. And so I went out and hired the smartest lawyer I knew in Russia, a young man named Sergei Magnitsky, to... Um, investigate what was going on and hopefully stop what was going on. Mm -hmm. And uh, Sergei investigated it, and he came back and said, I figured it all out. There were two objectives here. The first objective was to steal all of your money, but they didn't succeed because you were smart enough to get your money out before that happened. He said, however, the second objective did work. And the second objective was when, when I was selling everything really quickly after I'd been, after I'd been deported, um, we ended up with a very, very large profit um, on the sales. And we ended up paying to the Russian government. So we had a billion dollars of profit. And we paid to the Russian government $230 million of capital gains tax. And uh, uh, what happened, what Sergei had learned and, and discovered and through his investigation, was that the $230 million of, of taxes that we paid, the bad guys had gone with our stolen companies to the tax office and said, hey, there was a mistake made in the previous year's tax filing. Um, these companies um, didn't make a billion dollars, and they came up with some very complicated scheme to try to show that. They said, in fact, these companies made zero, and therefore the $230 million of taxes that were paid last year was paid in error. And they asked for a $230 million tax refund, which was the largest tax refund in the history of Russia. Mm -hmm. They applied for it on the 23rd of December, 2007, two days before Christmas, and it was approved and paid out the next day, 
Christmas Eve, mm. the largest tax refund in the history of Russia, paid back in one day on a fraud. Browder believed that Vladimir Putin would welcome the work he'd done to expose the rampant corruption in the financial services sector in Russia. But Browder told Target USA he was seriously mistaken. You'll soon hear about it as he tells the story of what he and his legal team uncovered. His lawyer's name, Sergei Magnitsky, is important right now because of its significance in the special counsel's probe into alleged collusion in the 2016 presidential election. Sergei got back to you and told you what was going on, and then something happened to Sergei, correct? So Sergei told me what was going on. We decided together that Putin, is because he's a nationalist, if he knew that he, that, that, and I should point out, this was not my money that was stolen. This was the Russian government's money that was being stolen by Russian government officials. Mm-hmm. And we were both convinced that if the good guy, that if we brought this to the attention of the highest level in Russia, the good guys would get the bad guys, and that would be the end of the story. And so um, we, we wrote criminal complaints to every different branch of the criminal justice system. I went to the TV and radio and newspapers, and then Sergei went to the Russian State Investigative Committee, which is their version of the FBI, and he gave sworn testimony against the police officers who conducted the raid. And we both sat back to wait for the good, waiting for the good guys to get the bad guys. And and uh, what we discovered was in Putin's Russia, there are no good guys. Five weeks after the. Uh, uh, Sergei testified against these corrupt officials. The same officials he testified against came to his home at 8 in the morning on the 24th of November 2008. They arrested him. They put him in pretrial detention and where he was then tortured to get him to uh, withdraw his testimony against the corrupt police officers and to sign a false confession saying that he had stolen the $230 million on my instruction. Mm-hmm. And he refused to do that. You know, and this this torture you're talking about was, uh, you know, this was extreme stuff. Um, very small cells, sleep deprivation, no windows, no heat, no toilet, that kind of thing, uh, and c- constantly keeping him moving. And it made him sick. Is that correct? So, so they, they were they were ex- exposing him to more and more of this like really sort of sadistic torture and pressure in the hopes that he'd crack. He refused to crack. It just got more and more escalated and escalated. And um, about six months into this, he ended up developing terrible pains in his stomach. He was diagnosed as, as having uh, pancreatitis and gallstones, and he had lost 40 pounds. And, um, and he was supposed to have an operation on, on this pancreatitis and gallstones on the 1st of August, 2009. But a week before his operation, they came to him again and said, um, signed this false confession. Again, he refused. And then in retaliation, they abruptly moved him from the prison that had a medical wing to a a notorious maximum security prison called Butyrka, which is considered to be one of the most horrible prisons in Russia. And most significantly for Sergei, there was no um, medical wing at Butyrka. Mm -hmm. And at Butyrka, his health completely broke down. He He went into a constant agonizing downward spiral of pain all of his requests for medical attention were um, rejected. And um, on the night of November 16, 2009, he went into critical condition. And on that night, um, the Butyrka authorities didn't want to have responsibility for him anymore. And so they put him in an ambulance and sent him to a different prison facility that had a medical wing. But when the ambulance arrived, instead of putting him in the emergency room, <clears throat> the, um, 
They put him in an, in an isolation cell. They chained him to a bed, and eight riot guards with rubber batons beat Sergei Magnitsky to death. Mm. That was uh, November 16, 2009, about eight years and four months ago. Sergei Magnitsky was 37 years old. He left, left a wife and two children. Yeah. This was the moment when Browder's eyes were opened. The killing of Sergei Magnitsky played a huge role in the creation of U.S. legislation known as the Magnitsky Act. It's a bipartisan bill passed by the Congress and signed by President Barack Obama in 2012. The intent? To punish Russian officials responsible for Magnitsky's death. What you had done with Sergei Magnitsky opened your eyes to the person that Vladimir Putin really was. Tell us what that, uh, describe him to us. Well, Vladimir Putin tries to present this image of being this sort of um, fierce nationalist, a, a patriot for Russia, someone who's looking out for Russia at the uh, and all these enemies that are surrounding them. But in fact, what the Magnitsky story shows is that here you have a real patriot, Sergei Magnitsky, a guy who discovers a massive, nearly quarter of a billion dollar crime against his own country. He thinks that 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 his leaders are patriots like him, and if he exposes the crime, then then the uh, uh, bad guys will get punished, and the, and the good guy will get the you know be recognized. But instead, it's just completely the opposite. That the bad guys um, allow, are allowed to keep the money. The good guy, um, the the patriot, is arrested, tortured, and viciously killed. And then afterwards, and this is very important, is that Putin personally got involved in the cover-up afterwards and exonerated all the people who committed the crime against Russia and they committed the crime against Sergei Magnitsky. And then they put, and then Vladimir Putin put Sergei Magnitsky on trial in the first ever trial against a dead man in the history of Russia. And this particular story completely and absolutely ruins any possibility of looking at Putin as anything other than a criminal. And he hates this story because it exposes him completely. And so, and he, and he further hates all the consequences which have come from this story. And I should point out that I've spent the last eight and a half years on a full-time campaign to get justice for Sergei Magnitsky, and we've gotten some justice. We've gotten the U.S. government to pass the Magnitsky Act, which, which imposes visa sanctions and asset freezes on the people who killed Sergei Magnitsky and the people in the Putin regime who do other types of things. And we now have five other countries that have that legislation in place, including Canada, Britain, and the Baltic countries. And Putin is apoplectic because never in his life has there ever been any consequence, any negative consequence for anything that he's done. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this one story which symbolizes his criminality um, has led to real consequences and real risk for Vladimir Putin because he's got money, a lot of it. He was actually one of the recipients of this, of this crime. And that money is kept offshore, and he understands full well, as he should, that he, all of his money, which is in the many tens of billions, I believe it's actually $200 billion, and this is, he believes that... And, oh, I'm sorry, And this is, this is what I was going to ask you about. A lot of people here, at least in the States, are simply not aware that Vladimir Putin is probably the richest man on the planet. He's the richest man on the planet, without any question. He got all this money from committing grave crimes against his own country and people in his own country, like Sergei Magnitsky. He's a complete and absolute mafia criminal. And this is not a man who, who, who is operating on any of the same rules that any other Western leader is operating on. He's a criminal. And, and, and it's, it, it, it 
defies logic for me to see anybody who ever sort of tries to minimize um, uh, the evil of Vladimir Putin, because I, I've seen him up close and personal. I know all the facts, and this man is terrible and evil. We're talking with Bill Browder, CEO of Hermitage Capital Management. He's an American and an enemy of Vladimir Putin. And when we come back, we'll hear him tell us just how far the Russian government has gone to try to take him down. In every possible way, I've been threatened with death, with kidnapping, with arrest. They've, the Russian government has, has sent out six Interpol red notice arrest warrants for me over the last five years. That's coming up when we continue on Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Our guest today is Bill Browder, CEO of Hermitage Capital Management. He's also the person responsible for the Magnitsky Act, which is U.S. legislation that holds the Russian government responsible for the death of Sergei Magnitsky in Russia. Magnitsky is the person the act was named after. Sergei was Browder's lawyer, helping him investigate an act of corruption against Browder's company. Browder himself in the process has become a sworn enemy of Vladimir Putin. And he came to the U.S. not too long ago to tell the Congress exactly why he's doing what he's doing and explain what it was that Vladimir Putin did to him. We continue our conversation now with Bill Browder. Part of the reason why you came to the U.S. to tell this, the Senate your story, I, I'm, I'm assuming this, correct me if I'm wrong, um, you, you, you understand that our president has, has not said anything at all regarding Putin and this alleged, uh, which the uh, intelligence community has said definitely happened, this interference. Uh, he has said that Vladimir Putin said he didn't do it and he believes him. And that's a part of the reason why you came to the U.S. to testify, to try to open some eyes. Is that correct? Well, my, my reason for coming to the U.S. To, to testify was all connected to one specific incident, which which was that Vladimir Putin was so angry about the Magnitsky Act that he sent his emissary, a Russian female lawyer named Natalia Veselnitskaya, to Trump Tower on June 9, 2016, shortly after Donald Trump was nominated as the Republican nominee. And that lawyer met with Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, and Paul Manafort, with one request, which was to repeal the Magnitsky Act. And um, and as a result of that, of course, everyone knows the Russian lawyer story and they know, um, uh, but as a consequence to that, it, it then explained effectively why Putin was messing with the US election, because he was doing it specifically because of this story that involves me and Sergei Magnitsky. And so I was invited to the Senate to explain what our story was why Putin cared about it, why he had sent his emissary to Trump Tower, and what it all meant for Russia's interests in the U.S. political process. Yeah. Now, to get back to the story, your story here, you uh, have clearly uh, proven yourself to be an enemy of Vladimir Putin. Has he tried to retaliate against you? In every possible way. I've been threatened with death, with kidnapping, with arrest. They've, the Russian government has, has sent out six Interpol red notice arrest warrants for me over the last five years. On what charges? 
on on charges of of fraud, of bankruptcy, of of tax evasion, of everything they can think of. They've tried every different trick in the book to try to get Interpol to arrest me wherever I'm traveling to. Now, thankfully, Interpol. Um, that my story is so well known that Interpol would would lose its its uh, uh, its its respectability if if they were to side with Russia on this story. And so Interpol has rejected these illegitimate requests. But that doesn't mean that that Russia has given up. I, I live in London, and the Russian government has made more than a dozen uh, what's called mutual legal assistance requests to have me extradited, to get information about me, to all, to get all sorts of other stuff. Just last week, I was uh, giving a speech at, at a human rights conference at the UN in Geneva, and I was detained at the Swiss border in Geneva airport briefly on a Russian request. Now, the Russians are doing everything that they can to try to try to get me, to try to kill me, to try to stop me, to try to intimidate me. Um, there are probably 250 people working full-time inside the Russian government at any given moment trying to destroy my life. You are very familiar, Mr. Browder, with the story of Alexander Litvinenko. And I happened to be in London that week of the infamous poisoning. So um, what does that story, how does that story inform what you do to protect yourself? Well, I uh, don't have, I don't eat sushi or drink tea with strange Russians, first of all. Um, but secondly, I mean, that, that story is a shocking story for two reasons. One, what, what the Russians are ready to do extraterritorially. It's also shocking um, because of what the Brits didn't do. The British government um, should have come down like a ton of bricks on Russia um, over that. I mean, that this was effectively a nuclear assassination in the streets of London against uh, a man who had become a British citizen. And so that was really kind of laid out the welcome mat for uh, Russians to do further hits in this country. And there was another person who was killed who was directly connected to our case, who was a Russian whistleblower. His name is Alexander Perpolichny. He was a member of the criminal enterprise that, that did this crime. He fell out with his co-conspirators. He fled to England. And he gave us a bunch of information which allowed us to um, uh, launch a major money laundering case against some of the some of the conspirators in Switzerland. And then uh, two years after he gave us that information, as he was jogging outside his home in Surrey, which is a suburb of London, he just dropped dead at the age of 44. And it's since been determined that he had traces of poison in his stomach. And so these people are, are, are brutal. They're ready to do anything anywhere. They're ready to do things um, particularly connected to this case. And, um, and they threatened me personally. The sad reality here, Mr. Browder, is that we shouldn't expect any of this to change, even after the Mueller indictment, which came back uh, indicting 13 Russians, three companies, and, uh, and, and, and Mr. Putin's alleged chef. We shouldn't expect any of this to change, should we? Well, Putin is not going to change himself. However, um, and, and anybody who thinks that they can somehow reason with Putin or appease him or, or get him to, to sort of stop it, 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 that's totally naive. However, Putin is not, a, he's, he's evil, but he's not very powerful. The, 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 the total size of the economy in Russia is the size of yeah. Italy. It's like, I mean, this, is not, this is not some kind of economic powerhouse. Um, they're not even a military powerhouse. We, we spend something like 20 times the amount they do um, per annum on, on, on uh, military budget. Um, we could wipe them out in a second if we if if it ever came to a confrontation, which of course nobody ever wants it to do. But um, uh, so what 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 what's required here 
is sort of waking up that that this man is 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 Pablo Escobar with nukes, and the the way to deal with this man with Vladimir Putin is is a hard containment strategy that basically you can't give him an inch anywhere. And he understands that. He's like he he understands boundaries when they're set for him properly. And we need to set those boundaries and we need to wake up that this man wishes us nothing but ill. And the best way to deal with him is to make sure that he understands there will be devastating consequences if he crosses any line anywhere. The president, President Trump, doesn't seem, at least publicly, to see this danger. Does that concern you? Well, it's interesting that there's a sort of schizophrenia going on in Washington. If you listen to Donald Trump's um, words or you read his tweets, it's offensive. It's offensive that he somehow minimizes who the evil of Vladimir Putin, that he calls him a good guy and he doesn't, and so on and so forth. Having said that, the people who work for Donald Trump are absolutely um, capable people. The, the Defense Secretary Mattis, the, the uh, uh, UN Ambassador Haley, um, Rex Tillerson. If you if you watch their actions or read their speeches, they're not doing um, Putin any favors at all. And um, uh, in the case of Magnitsky, they they added more names to the Magnitsky list at the end of December. They provided um, uh, offensive weapons to the Ukrainians. Um, uh, this is so so it's it's a bit weird. And and mostly, I would say that mostly the um, policy of the of the U.S. government has actually been relatively okay, with a couple of exceptions, which of course come back to the election meddling discussion where there's been no action, no proper action taken at all. But on on most of the files or most of the portfolios, um, Putin hasn't gotten what he wants. It's it's unclear to, to me and to everybody else what, what what's really going on with Trump and his mind, whether, whether he's even paying attention to what his administration is doing or whether this is some kind of weird um, good cop, bad cop strategy. Hard to know what's going on, but I would much prefer, and I pray that that um, that um, Trump, uh, you know, wakes up to the reality and behaves like any normal president would, and contains Vladimir Putin in all the ways that I've just described. Absent of that, Mr. Browder, you're looking very clearly and closely, I'm sure, at what's going on in the U.S. now as the probes continue into Russian meddling, and one of the one of the key uh, one of the key messages that's coming out of all of this from intelligence officials, at least the ones that I've been speaking to and sources, is that the Russians have cranked up an even more powerful uh, meddling operation for the 2018 election. And uh, no, knowing that the Russian intelligence apparatus, you know, does what it does with the mind of a chess player, where do you think we stand in the U.S. right now? Uh, the U.S. is completely and absolutely exposed at the moment, but but not, but not exposed. I mean, so there's one big advantage between now and 2016, which is we're fully aware of what they do and what they intend to do. And that awareness, whether the president wants to mobilize the country or whether the country wants to mobilize on its own, um, should make it a little more difficult for the Russians to succeed in actually doing what they're doing because everybody knows what their intentions are. Having said that, it's it's absurd based on the information that we have that there's not a full scale total lockdown going on going into 2018 based on 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 the fact that that it's now fully acknowledged and and described how Russia um, basically interfered with the 2016 election. You've written a couple of books regarding all of this. One of them is called Red Notice that essentially takes on this story 
um, very clearly how I became Putin's number one enemy. And you've told us, in part, um, it wasn't because you did anything to him, uh, aside from doing what you thought and obviously were raised to do um, the right thing, which he clearly exposed himself um, to you as a, a crook by essentially going the wrong way uh, on this and siding with the wrong side. So uh, what, what, what else is in the future here as you continue to push the story? Well, so so what we discovered was that that um, we found the Achilles heel of the Putin regime. They they commit their crimes in Russia, and then they keep their money in the West. And so my objective is in in the name of Sergei Magnitsky, um, to pass Magnitsky acts in every country in every civilized country, where bad Russians would want to keep their money. And so we've got six countries so far, and I'm 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 gearing up in France, in Holland, in Sweden in Australia this year to get Magnitsky acts passed in those countries. And I'm hoping that eventually the world basically becomes a, a, a totally inhospitable place um, for Russian government gangsters and, and also gangsters from other countries. It's not just Russia that does this kind of stuff. They do it in China, they do it in Iran, they do it in Venezuela. I think that the, the civilized countries of the world should no longer tolerate this type of behavior. And the best way to do it is just to close off the financial system and not allow these people to travel. So if they wanna ruin their own countries, they're going to be stuck serving time in their own countries, even if if just stuck within their borders. Very last thing, if you had to issue a stark and blunt warning to the to the American people and people everywhere regarding Russia's active measures, as they're called, interference operations, and how to deal with them, what would you say? Well, I would say that that Vladimir Putin um, will not stop until he is stopped. We already know for sure that he wants to influence the outcome of the political process in America and create chaos. And by allowing him to do so, we're giving him the greatest geopolitical victory that Russia has ever had, far greater than all the nuclear warheads that they've accumulated. Um, and we should stop them at every step of the way. And, and if the president of the United States doesn't want to acknowledge it, we should acknowledge, acknowledge it at every different level of government, uh, state, local, city. Um, and we should look at ways of, of reinforcing and protecting ourselves because this is what they do this is the we're in the third world war as an information war it's no longer a bullet war and we have to stop them well bill browder thank you so much for telling your story you are an american-born british financier ceo and co-founder of the hermitage capital management and investment fund thank you very much and uh, we look forward to staying in touch with you on this great thank you too. have a great day Bye -bye. Bill Browder, CEO of Hermitage Capital Management. Coming up on our next program, we dig deeper into the repercussions for Russia's alleged poisoning of Sergei Skripal in Salisbury, England. My message to, to the Russian government is to stop testing Western countries in aggressive ways, in ways which are counterproductive, in ways which increase international tension. That message from Michael Tatham, Deputy Ambassador at the British Embassy here in Washington. And if Russia doesn't stop it, there are other options. Well, Putin, you know, nobody knows how rich he is. But, you know, it, some stories have it that he gets 50% of all big business in Russia. Robert Bayer, former CIA covert operative. If you go after his money, that's the stability of the regime. He can't afford to be, um, which have be sanctioned. 
his personal money. Coming up in the next episode of Target USA. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support. Please subscribe to our podcast and also let me know what you think. Send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. jgreen at wtop.com. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hey, podcast listener, this is Rob Sesternino. I'm the Rob, and Rob has a podcast, and the new season of Survivor is just getting started, and we've got new episodes for you five days a week. Join us for interviews with your favorite past Survivor players and this season's losers right after they get their torch snuffed. Listen free to Rob Has a Podcast, exclusively available on Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and the Podcast One app. And if you like the show, why not share it with a friend or leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.